One of the most interesting, not interesting, unexpected things I've found in my personal study of, of Proverbs in Hebrew, which has been sort of a renaissance for me as a pastor, you as a place have provided me the luxury, I think it is in some ways, of studying the Bible carefully every week. I, I have that time in my calendar, and we've built this place to allow that. It's been such a blessing to me. I, I got to say, I hope you hear it. Uh, one of the great surprises I've found is how many of the words in Hebrew carry more than one meaning and overlap into what in English are very diverse words. So, for example, when I discovered that the same word for to rule a people is the word proverb, I thought, well, that's interesting, isn't it, then? It's like the word of God was actually the thing that was doing the thing the whole time. And that's, that's what we got to believe now and know. Again, Jesus embodied more than anyone who has ever lived. He knew these words so well. The most stunning thing in the text this week, I am not able to dive into it deep enough to satisfy me this week. I barely scratched the surface. Is it in this phenomenal story wherein he both weeps, right? When was the last time you wept? He weeps publicly on the road over the city that's about to kill him because they're about to kill him because he wants everyone to be saved and only the elect will believe. He weeps, then he goes in and he drives out these money changers. We'll talk a little bit more about what all that means. But when we have his words recorded, the thing that he shouts at them or the answer he gives when they say, by what authority do you do this particular thing? It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. All right, this is so cool. That's a quote from the Bible. Jesus quoted the Bible. They asked him, asked him a question. He didn't say anything other than it's written. He didn't tell him where. He said in the Old Testament, it's in the Bible. And he said two things, and they're from completely different places. The house of prayer is one passage. The den of thieves is another passage. That passage is, uh, excuse me, the house of prayer passage, we did not hear read. You heard the den of thieves one this morning. The house of prayer passage is Isaiah 56. I believe it's in verse 7. I attempted this week to go read up on both of those passages to bring it all to you. I wanted to pull it all together. What did he mean? What was he saying? It was too much. I got deep into Jeremiah, the one that we have before us. So we'll get some of that today. Um, I have a quote, if I can find it. I may have put it aside, about out of this great big book here. Here it is. So here's the kind of resource I go and dig into. I love this. You guys probably think I'm crazy. I love this. Um, the quote out of here about the Isaiah passage is this. It's a note of admonition on the general righteousness of life. Now, that sounds really dry, and it is, it's quite a profound statement. The general righteousness of life. What's that? What's that? Well, that's what Jesus is kind of angry about. Now, there's a lot for Jesus to be angry about on this moment when he's casting out the thieves, the money changers, those who put their trust in mammon, those who put their trust in idols. He's casting them out from his house of prayer because his house of prayer no longer is a place it's supposed to be. 
And the story from the week preceding that summarizes this more than any other is that of the widow and her two small coins that she puts in to the offering plate. Now, there is something to be said about how that woman's faith was profound and right. She had listened to her preachers. And her preachers had told her that she had to give her all for Jesus. And so she put in her last two pennies. Now Jesus points this out. But I don't think he's pointing this out because he wants you to put in your last two pennies. I mean, he does. He says that other places, though. It's much more clear. What he's pointing out here is, is something that you have to know the temple system to get. What's that offering plate for? You know? It's to feed widows. It's to feed widows. She put her last two pennies, this widow, in the plate to feed widows. What's the problem in that system where they're changing money and selling cattle all over the place? Is somebody getting missed in it? Yeah, the, the, the common Christian. The hungry soul. So Jesus is livid for very good reason. Now what we want to do now here, St. Paul, is realize he's livid at us. Now, not just us, and not specifically, but the moment we start getting on our nose, we got to remember where we have come from and in what country we dwell. We come from being a bastion of Lutheranism in a city that was strong. And now we're in a little tiny boat, a little ark, a float. We scuttled out from the ship right before it blew up. We're floating on the waters of a country that looks crazier and crazier by the week. What's to become of us? What's to become of Christianity? Does Christianity have enough heart to even live through this? Those are the kind of questions that many are asking. Now, again, Jesus' answer here is what's so beautiful about God's wrath. So let me just say, if you're an American who believes in God and don't like liars in politics, guess what? That makes God angry. That goes against the general righteousness of life. And the God who is just and merciful for the sake of his mercy will drive out that unjust leader. Will cast that lying proverbialist. Remember how it's all about the words they say. He will cast that proverbialist to the ground. And then again, this is all, of course, about the fight between the Bible as truth and everything else that's going on in the world, right? So it gets very quickly from the world out there, wherein the truth of God's word does not want to be heard, but it must be heard these days, all the more, all the way down to your life in your home, where daily you're going to battle to have it come out of your mouth. Remember that the wrath of God, when you see it, is there to save you. That the cross of Jesus is the heart of all that we face. That whenever something looks like it's going to be poured out entirely, that's in fact God casting away the dross to bring forth the regeneration that he has already seeded in you. This is why baptismal theology is so important, even though today we're going to be challenged on it. We're going to be challenged on it. Okay, so Jesus. This is why they kill him. Don't miss this either. He overturns their money. He throws away their idols, and they are idols because they have little heads on them, little images. And that is what an idol is, a picture that you bow down to. That's very fascinating to me in our modern times. But here at that time, it was on the money. 
it was in the temple for what ostensibly is a very good reason. Imagine for a moment that you are a retired citizen and you live afield from Judea because your generations removed thanks to the exile. But dutifully and faithfully, you go back to Judea three times a year for all of the major festivals. The trick is, is that as you age and your wife ages, it gets tougher and tougher to bring that ox with you all the way across the Mediterranean Sea or all the way around by land every year. It's much less expensive to buy one when you get to Judea. And so it's certainly worth the price and even the uneven scales, the unfair exchange rate on the temple shekel in order to buy your your livestock, your offerings there at the temple. Now, all of this had become a very, very lucrative game, again, uh, for those who were in charge. The Sadducees is who this party is. Remember, the Pharisees don't really like the Sadducees. They want everything done right at the temple, but they're not really in charge of the temple. They're running the synagogues. But the Sadducees have become very lucrative. And when Jesus goes in this day, as the things he does this day, the things he says this day in this place, combined with his raising of Lazarus from the dead, that the apostles tell us caused the leadership to be done with him. They're going to destroy him now. Do you catch how strong that language is? They want to destroy God because he's there for that widow. Wow, what a time and how blind. And again, America, we live in such times. We live in such blindness. We live in such a place where common sense is becoming uncommon because they're telling us it has to be. And that means the truth, wherever it's heard. Oh, goodness. We're going to move now from our Lord chastening the temple, stating that this temple is no longer where his name will be. And remember, it's at this same time that he says, tear down this temple. He points to his body. And I'll raise it again in three days. Everyone gets confused. Took 40 years to build this temple, all that, right? So he's also, as he says, this temple's done. It's a den of thieves. I'm quoting Jeremiah and Isaiah about the end of that temple then to say it's over now. Tear down it, this one in me, and the new one will come forth forever and ever Last supper, take eat, this is my body. The temple is now here among us and going into you is the supper. If you followed all of that, you followed the whole history of salvation as a physical reality. We're going to follow again from Jesus being there saying, I am the temple because the body and blood that we take, that's him now, always. Uh, He's saying, I'm the temple, kill me and raise me. And he's quoting this Old Testament passage. We're just going to go look at the Jeremiah one now. And this is a, a beautiful text although it's also terrifying. You heard it read, and it just hits you. And I'm going to make it hit you more because I'm going to demonstrate to you how ridiculous it sounds. Uh, Don't get too worried. There's there's a very clear understanding for the present, but it is ridiculous. So we're going to go verse by verse here for a moment. The word of God that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. This then is a common beginning for any Old Testament prophet. God told me, go do something and say something in some way. This will be repeated or 
added into with the thus saith the Lord kind of refrain. But it, what he's saying here is that what I'm saying is not from me. It's not my idea. I didn't make it up. I didn't come up with it. The God, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who is and shall shall be, it's his word to his people, Judea, at this time. Huh? But he's also supposed to do it then in a special place. He's supposed to go to the temple gates. At the gates of the temple, there was a wide passageway where many people could come in and go out. Remember, all the livestock that got to be moved through this place. And there is an overhang, or so it is told, uh, that was there where leadership, those who, who would speak, could stand and, and shout out over the crowd, kind of an, an over, like a pulpit, actually, quite a bit like this, except over a gate where people are entering. And he's supposed to go there. Now, whether this is at a high festival time, where there's lots of people, or whether it's kind of just a humdrum, you know, middle of the summer kind of Sunday, uh, this is a very public thing to do. And what he says is going to be heard by a lot of important and powerful people. Jeremiah's life gets pretty rough after some of these things. But he goes on to say this particular message. Verse 3, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Pardon me while I get another sip of water this morning. This is the ridiculous part. To make it like as connecting as possible, I'm going to say this is like if he were to say, do not trust in the Lord's Supper. Do not trust in the Lord's Supper. Do not trust in the Lord's Supper. It's, it's, it is kind of what he said. Now, remember, no apostle or, well, we might have had angels from heaven, frankly. Uh, no resurrected son of God or his 12 apostles have said the Lord's Supper is no longer the Lord's Supper and you shouldn't trust in it. So, so we're living in a time where you should trust the Lord's Supper. If someone came to you with bread and wine and he wasn't the high priest of Melchizedek, you know, sometime in, uh, you know, what, all worship, he pulls out bread and wine. You don't want that stuff. You know, you only want it when it's the Lord's Supper. So this is what we have now. What they had then was the temple and the Ark of the Covenant, right? And they're putting their trust in it being there and saying the God who is there is going to be with us while they do a bunch of really evil stuff. Are there any, you know, once Trinitarian mainline churches these days attempting to create homogenous trans realities among children? Yeah, there are. It'd be like that a little bit, you know. Um, there's a lot of other ways it could be. Basically, it's hypocrisy in the church. And I would say why it's maybe fun to politicize it with big, broad stories you can apply it in the same way to any congregation at any time that starts to say to itself, the gospel is that I'm saved. All right, I'm going to do whatever I want now. And not just like say it to yourself, but actually live that way. This text is saying to that person, 
Yeah, you were baptized, but you don't believe in it. So it don't do you no good. You know, it's there to you, all the good in the world. What good? To believe in it. But you talk about it all the time. I talk about it. I say I'm baptized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But look at how you don't listen to Jesus. Look at how you live your life for greed and the flesh. Look how hard it is to pray. What we want to hear from this warning is not only that now the Lord's Supper is the temple of the Lord in which you should trust and throw yourself on the ground, amending your ways and your deeds to dwell in peace before him every day the rest of your life. But then also that personal repentance every day the rest of your life is you believing that the reason the Lord's Supper is the current temple of the Lord is so it can go into your mouth and make you the current temple of the Lord. And so every day of the rest of your life, that temple is to be filled with songs of praise and certainty amidst the storms. So that even though some church come along and take away the supper from you, some age come upon you, wherein you only get it once per quarter, and those ages have come and gone more than once in Lutheranism's history. Yet still you will know that the song in the Psalms and the truth of the King of Israel in the Proverbs and the red letters of Jesus Christ are a truth so certain for you, so infallible for you, that you will be a master of all around you by just the faith again that God's sufficient, that Christ is King. That common sense is for me the commoner, and he's got the big stuff under control. Now, that's not the message, though, being given at Jerusalem this day. The message is, hey, y'all, like, this is your last chance. If you don't realize that doing evil makes evil, then you're going to just have to have a bunch of evil. For Lutherans, I think this is difficult to talk about. Like, I could say it that way, and it's okay. But really, this is about righteousness, the general righteousness of life. It's about what you do. So Lutherans, I've been struggling to, to get this even clear in my head all week. So if I don't say it right yet, I'll try again by the end of the sermon. But we have this thing where we are so fearful that someone will on the surface attack like the catholics do the article on justification by grace alone through faith alone that we're afraid to talk about how there's another kind of righteousness that is in fact built into creation for man without which worse things happen like you can become as righteous as the pagans can be, which means you stay married to your wife, you tell the truth, and you don't steal, and you know there's something up there somewhere. And life's going to go better than if you try to go against nature by sleeping with your neighbor's wife and lying to everyone in the town all the time. Like You're going to have a very different life as a result of that. And it's really all about what you do. Now, Christianity is the fact that even that guy is saved if he believes. 
And he's supposed to be listening right now and saying, man, I need to repent. And I'm going to say, yes, you do. Do it. Good. God's got you. Jesus has you. But all of this is, again, a story to emphasize how we are being brought into a different mindset than the world around us, one in which this body enters into you. And these words aren't mine but are Christ's, and they go with you to mark you set apart from the rest of this fallen age. But there will be those who you will be able to discern as being liars precisely because they will say the opposite of what the scriptures say. It's only by knowing the scriptures that we, you, the temple of the Lord, us, the body of Christ, us, the congregation, you individually, you see how it all works together. It's by knowing the scriptures together that our minds are guarded in safety. The safety isn't of this age. It's of the certainty of the age to come. So that in the moments where this age seems a storm, your eyesight can pierce the storm with the certainty of Scripture. At the moment when you're in the temple and all the stuff's going everywhere and you're so heated because of the idols that are right there, you can quote the Bible (laughs) really well because you've studied it. And I contest to you, by study, I just mean read it. Get into those Psalms. And then you can see how all of this rage he has at the temple in the Jeremiah text is because of these people in verse 5 and 6 who are being overlooked. You want to talk about something that makes me think about Illinois. For if you truly amend your ways and you do your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, that'd be the Latino the illegal immigrant who's here, whether you like it or not. And it's not saying you don't oppress them. Realize they're here because they're oppressed. They fled oppression to oppression. It's just better oppression here. If you do not oppress the sojourner, it's not up to us, but it's happening around us. It makes me think of it. The fatherless, the widow, shed innocent blood. Have I told you the story about the police station? You know that Central PD station? Before it was a PD station, it was an abortion clinic. You know, before that, it was a school. Innocent blood. If you do not go after other gods to your own harm, that's the part where we want to pause and look at ourselves. But see the promise here, though. If you don't do these things, I'll let you dwell longer in the land. As a Christian who knows you're saved by grace, go into the paradise that is to come, what does that mean for you now? It means you can know that your ways are going to outlast the evil ways of your neighbors. It means that you know that what the Bible says is a rock is something you can build upon no matter what. You may not be able to have your best life now, but 80% is going to be pretty good. And it's just going to be day by day. The more you dream and ask for things that are far away, way out of you, the more disappointed you're going to make yourself with your life. The most valuable thing about the Bible and reading the Psalms throughout the day, if you can get that practice as a son of Solomon, one, two, three, four times a day, is it just makes you pause and remember where you live and that your God is with you and that today is enough because he might come back. Ah. But still, to come back to the law, see how I always want to go to the, the rejoicing in this. I look at Illinois and I see these people And I see a governance that is failing them, and it makes me afraid for all of us. 
And rather than want to get political about it, I want you to pray the Psalms with me. You go get political out there. Pray the Psalms with me as a people here. That's what I want. Because these people, their being oppressed and hurt and overlooked is why governments fall. Because God, Jesus, tears them down. And he has many messages that say, don't be too close, Christians, when I do it. It's the pattern of history. It's the pattern of history. Christians are always in an arc, though. And you got to see this in the big picture. We're always in the boat, which is the church. So that whatever the generation change does to us, we're nonetheless founded on an anchor that is sure and true, which is the Holy Bible, a text that never changes, yeah? or it shouldn't. Knowing that, we are prepared for whatever may come, but we have to know that when governments don't take care of these people, God tears those governments down. Sometimes the next government's better, sometimes it's worse. Sometimes he visits his three and four generations, sometimes he doesn't. This is first article stuff. This is just how the created order works. Again, the church is an ark going through the flood. And it's more concerned with you staying a believer through the flood than you actually walking through merrily. But the general promise is that you walk through all right. But it is by knowing what the Bible says so that when they say to you things the Bible doesn't say, you can say, away from me, Satan. It is written. I know my Redeemer lives, and so forth. Yeah. All right. So the promise, again, of temporal blessing for temporal good works is a created order that does not go away. Today, we're going to have a voters meeting. What does that mean? It means we're going to take care of the building and the money. That's what it means. Temporal things, things that pass, things that perish with their use. These can be blessings. These can be curses. They're not going to go away, though, till Jesus comes back. And so we try to pursue good order. Huh? And we even in our Constitution quote that Bible verse at the start of it, to pursue good order. The idea is that we want to live in harmony with what the Bible says. And I'm telling you as a pastor, whatever else may come, it's in disharmony with what the Bible says. And so we are well prepared as the lighthouse and ark on this corner for these times. This is not a time to be afraid, but a time to rejoice, even as we recognize there are temples that are going to be torn down, maybe too close to us for our own excitement. Hmm. The key is, verse 8, not to trust in deceptive words, not to do these kinds of things. Steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal. Hmm. What does that mean to us today? And what is idolatry? This is so tough for me because I don't know how to answer this question for you honestly yet. I do, but I don't. Like the classic Lutheran answer is this. You know, an, an idol is anything you put your fear, your love, or your trust in more than Jesus. And all the catechumenists go, oh, I see that. Okay, so intellectually I get it. I can't actually trust Jesus. Got it. Check. And that's like point one in how we catechize, which... Do you see what, how that might go wrong if you're 12? What you just thought? I can't trust Jesus. Got it. Check. If that's what you learned that day. What we mean, what we mean when we say that an idol is anything you fear, love, and trust in more than Jesus 
is that if there is a single thing in your life that you pay more attention to than you do to Jesus, which let me just offer up reading the Bible as what I mean by Jesus for most of this time. Now, if you don't read the Bible because this other thing takes up so much time, that is in fact an idol. It's not just that you don't trust Jesus enough. It's that you are trusting this other thing instead of Jesus to the exclusion of Jesus. St. John the Apostle ends 1 John, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. How do you find the idols in your life? That's a question that I've been wrestling with. I know they're there. So what I'm going to say next is just where I found mine, all right? My idol that I found was when I realized that there was something I was reaching for, grasping for before anything else. What was amazing is that this thing is it's such a cool thing. Like it's not a bad thing, this idol. It's the thing about idols. They're very good usually. That's why we worship them. But in in every moment, for almost every need, this thing was, if not needed, with me. Can you guess what it is? Uh, It wasn't just my phone. It was my phone. But I'm I'm just going to call it my screen, a screen. Or for me, I think of it as the TV. It was in my life, you know, from infancy, effectively. So I never really thought about it as something I might idolize. But here's where it got me, okay? It's when I started to realize that my bodily position was kind of bowed down to it as I watched it. And that I was doing this for like hours. And I was, I was like, what am I doing with my body right now? And, you know, moving from hand to screen to here to there. The more I asked that question, the more I found a fear of letting go. Which I've been pushing on for me because it's, again, this is about me. Um, fear of letting go. I found that it was easier to let go than I thought for those of you who are like me and like, but I could never, the email, yeah, you got to go slow. But you, you can back out of it a bit. Um, but the, the other thing that got me most again is how much my spirit was drained at the end of it. I never thought about that. I always thought I was relaxing by playing video games. Um, I tell my kids that, you know, I relax it. Um, but it didn't make me less tired. Now, so again, for me, the screen was, wasn't like just the TV. It wasn't just a video game. Like, like it was life. <laughs> and I've now probably a year and a half without really using one for entertainment. I've gone to the flip phone. You have the number in the bulletin. It's got the voicemail working now. So if you know me personally, you can get to me. No one else out there gets that. Yeah, we're not supposed to generally. Yeah. Um, so, so that's me backing away from what I found to be something that just was taking too much of my time. Just taking too much of my time. And I, part of why I backed off is I tried to back off a little bit and the darn thing wouldn't let me. Kept telling me I had to pay attention to it. Notification, notification. Yeah. So I just kept doing this, doing this. But the, the point of the story now here again is that to read the Bible to open the Psalms is to rest. That's what the Bible says. And we're all too tired to do it. 
There's a lot going on in our lives. What's the antidote? Rest. Rest. Open the Bible and rest. Whether you go to Romans 9 for something intellectual and chunky, Ecclesiastes for for the meat of how to live in today's kind of world, whether you want something amazing that just makes you feel crazy like Revelation, or you got to go start at the beginning, go all the way through, because everyone wants to, and then Leviticus beats them up. Maybe go start with 2 Samuel. See where that gets you. That one's, that one's something. Uh, I'll see if I can give you another one out of the blue. Just read Amos. It's pretty short. It, read it for fun. See what happens. Let the temple of the Lord be made holy somewhere other than Sunday. And by the way, we open this temple Wednesday, so you can come do it here together if you want. All right, I told you I'd have to miss a lot of Romans 9 today. It's so good. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I just preached on how you have to keep the law or you get driven out of actual life on this planet. Like the fires come on this planet when we don't keep the law, don't kill people. (laughs) And don't steal from people. But with regard to how the king views his kingdom eternally, Christ Jesus has become the end of all of that. He has not only become the end of it as in, he knows we can't attain it. He became the end of it in that he fulfilled it in himself entirely. So much so that it goes into you. The fulfillment of it in you right now. His body, his temple in this place. And again, every time then an hallelujah might come out of your mouth, that is in fact Jesus Christ singing over his entire creation to remind them that you are not going to die. Can somebody testify? Amen. <laughs> he, is he is risen. Hallelujah. There's so much in Romans 9. We're going to go on past it. And we're going to just close again with Jesus at the, at the temple here and the story. The story, the story, the story. Plato The philosopher is a critic. Jesus Christ told stories. Why? I don't know. But I know the stories about Jesus are good stories. And I know this one about him at the temple that day is one that doesn't get told enough. It's not the kind of thing that they they like to bring up in Sunday school as go be like this, kids. But it is the story you want your sons to know about Jesus. You want your sons, when they see something wrong, not to be people who run away from it, but people who run toward it. Not necessarily in wrath, but knowing what the wrath of God is. Running toward it in faith, in the God who is behind them, crucified already in time, alive inside them by precious body, blood, promise, and of course, baptismal water. And that, St. Paul, is my prayer for you, sons all of God, as we wait for his great day. In the name of Jesus.